0: Infertility ranks up there with, you know, loss of a parent. It ranks incredibly highly on an emotionally important scale, and so does miscarriage. By the way, miscarriages—we now recognise it's been increasingly poorly recognised as the social and societal impact that that has, particularly on women.
1: Welcome to the Illumina Genomics podcast where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Well, hello, and welcome to Episode 51 of the Genomics Podcast. I am your host, Paul Broman, and I'm also the Scientific Affairs Lead at Illumina. And on our show, we talk about breakthroughs in science and medicine and genomics. And in our last podcast episode, we were joined by Zoe Milgram of Eugene Labs, who talked about genetic carrier screening. And we discussed how carrier screening can be used to scan our genome for specific DNA sequence variants that are linked to autosomal recessive diseases. And although these genetic screening tests are not conclusive, and they're not intended for diagnostic applications, they can help determine a couple's chance of having a child with an inherited genetic disorder. But for some couples, the real challenge to having a baby is infertility or miscarriage. In vitro fertilization, or IVF, is a set of technologies that can be used to overcome female or male infertility. So, to talk about infertility and IVF, I'm joined by Dr. Mark Bowman. Mark is Associate Professor at the University of Sydney, and he's the medical director of GENEA, a leading fertility clinic in Australia. Listen to Mark explain the science and technology behind IVF and how next generation sequencing can improve IVF through pre-implantation genetic screening, or PGS and Pre-implantation Genetic Diagnosis, or PGD. Let's first talk about miscarriage. How common is it? How big of a medical challenge is it today?
0: Well, miscarriage is actually far more common than perhaps many people realise because it's really part of nature's sorting things out through the process of reproduction. Reproduction or having a baby is a complicated process, And it involves, you know, starting off with a sperm and an egg and ending up with a baby, which in any other context is a ridiculous prospect. (laughs) So it's not rare then. In fact, it's fairly common for that to not go right. And nature tends to sort that out, usually early on in the process. So that's what miscarriage is about. So if you're in your early 30s as a woman... Perhaps, you know, one in 10 to one in six pregnancies will end in miscarriage. But by the time that woman is 40, it can be easily one in four to maybe one in three.
1: So how much do we understand about what's causing miscarriage, what some of the biological mechanisms are? What are the most common causes of miscarriage?
0: Well, in fact, even when someone has had more than one miscarriage, The vast majority of people, it's not about something about their body, okay? There there is a known list of recurrent causes of miscarriage, either on the maternal or on the paternal side. In fact, most cases of miscarriage, however, is an error within the embryo, and that can be a metabolic error that we can't measure for very well at this point, or indeed it could be a chromosome error or an abnormal number of chromosomes, which is aneuploidy.
1: So there's a particular kind of technology called pre-implantation genetic screening, or PGS, and that's a technique that can help you to detect abnormalities in a pregnancy. Can you briefly describe PGS for our listeners and you know when it's typically performed?
0: Sure. Well, PGS requires the use of IVF technology. So IVF is where a woman has a series of hormone injections to make multiple eggs grow. Normally in a menstrual cycle or an ovulation cycle, only one egg develops. So after about 10 days of injections, you can make multiple oocytes grow. You collect those oocytes from the woman using an ultrasound-based procedure. You combine them with the sperm of the partner and you culture embryos in the laboratory. That's standard IVF. And standard IVF means five days later, you take the nicest looking embryo on the uh-huh. basis of its looks and put it in, and you freeze any other nice looking embryos that are left over. Right. PGS is where you take that embryo at five days, and you actually take a small number of cells away from that embryo, or what they call a blastocyst. And you run a test on those cells to diagnose whether that embryo has aneuploidy or not. So, PGS has the ability beyond IVF to help potentially decrease miscarriage. Right. As opposed to, so if a couple present with infertility, we may just need to do ordinary IVF, which means we put embryos in on the basis of the looks because it's not a miscarriage issue, it's the fact that they can't get pregnant in the first place. In contrast, we will see couples who don't have any trouble getting pregnant but have trouble staying pregnant where they've had recurrent random aneuploidies through bad luck and they could then elect to do PGS not because they need it to get pregnant, but they need it to reduce their miscarriage risk.
1: Like in the IVF techniques, there must have been a lot of developments in the mm. technology for screening for PGS. Can you talk about some sure. of those technologies?
0: Let's start at the basics. The most fundamentally important thing about being able to offer a reliable PGS service is to have a robust and high-performance IVF laboratory. And that's about the culture and incubation of embryos, the incubators that they develop in the fluid systems, that the the media, culture media, and the freezing technology because PGS involves freezing of embryos whilst you're waiting for the diagnosis on the cells to come through. So
1: that infrastructure is a really important part of Absolutely, the process. Absolutely. It's
0: fundamentally important. You know, I mean, there is data around, for example, there was a very good study done in the United States last year, and actually might be more than one year ago now, <laughs> where, you know, a central PGS scientist analysed The results of cells coming from multiple IVF centres and finding a significant difference in the rate of aneuploidy beyond what would be expected by chance. So what that means is that an independent person has found that some IVF units do a good job and some IVF units do a not so good job. And so if you can't provide a fundamentally robust IVF system in the first place, you can't provide an adequate PGS service. So that's one thing about the evolution of the technology. The other thing that's happened is when you do a biopsy of an embryo, you know, so an embryo in nature, the egg and sperm fertilise in the fallopian tube and the embryo takes about five days to get down to the uterus. And by about the third day an embryo is about eight cells. Okay. And by about the fifth day, it's exponentially divided to be about 100 plus cells. Okay. So there's an enormous progression in the embryo over those two days. Now, historically, you know, IVF systems and still some today only watch their embryos in culture to day three, and the original testing technology was to take one cell from an eight-cell embryo. One out of eight. Yeah, as opposed to today where we have a 100-cell blastocyst, we can take maybe four or five cells I see. away from the blastocyst, which is actually proportionately less. It might only be four or five percent of the embryo cell mass compared to one-eighth of the embryo's cell mass. And so that's less disturbance to the embryo and it also gives you more material to test. And also the blastocyst is already differentiated. It's got most of the shell of the cells. If you can imagine a 100-cell soccer ball, that's what a blastocyst is. Most of that rim of the cells are going to be the placenta. So when we are sampling cells to send for PGS we're taking placenta-based cells.
1: Oh, not fetal cells. Rather
0: than cells that are going to be the fetus in the future, as opposed to at day three, you have no idea whether that blastomere you are taking is going to be part of the inner cell mass that's going to be the fetus in the future or going to be the placenta in the future.
1: And in terms of some of the screening tests that you use for chromosomal abnormalities, genetic abnormalities, can you talk a little bit about those? Sure. So
0: historically, you know, if we want to look at Chromosome material. We've usually had a luxury. We've taken a blood test off somebody to do a chromosome test. We've had hundreds of cells to work with. So, we had established technologies that were not applicable to measuring only four or five placenta cells. So that's gone through an evolution of looking at different alternative ways of doing that. Initially, it was using uh, fluorochrome. Like fish. Yeah, like fish. It's moved on through uh, comparative genomic hybridization of this technology, CGH. And now we're using this more advanced technique called next generation sequencing, which is more accurate which has its ups and downs, by the way. Really? but it, It's more accurate, but ultimately we believe more reliable.
1: What are some of the ups of the of the? Well, the, the
0: ups are that we get a more reliable sample and uh more reliable result, and the turnaround is probably a little faster, and we have a higher degree of accuracy. Because any of this is going to... Inevitably, any PGS is going to have a small degree of false positivity and false negativity. And we believe that that's reduced. The flip side being is that we are discovering things that we didn't previously know about. And, and I think worldwide we're still learning the lessons of that. For example, the commonest is if we take five cells and we find that two of the cells give us one answer and three of the cells give us another answer...
1: Then what do you do? That's what
0: people call mosaicism. and I And I think what we are trying to evaluate... Pretty successfully but gradually. This is a worldwide collective effort of experience. We're trying to evaluate, is that something about the test platform? Is that something just a normal part of nature? Right. In other words, maybe lots of placental cells have a bit of mosaicism, but it doesn't really cause us concern. Or is it that this represents something that's not right in the fetal cells because remember, we we're analyzing placenta cells, not right. fetal cells. So it's led to a certain degree of labor intensivity, you know, through counseling and discussion and stuff like that. But on balance, we have gained more out of the introduction of PGS technology than we have lost on it.
1: So in terms of the kinds of genetic changes that you're looking for when you do one of these tests, is it just chromosomal abnormalities or are there other kinds of DNA uh, changes? Look, you're looking at
0: this. at this point, The most reliable and utilised technology worldwide is looking at nuclear DNA, which is the chromosome count. There is, I believe, still at a research setting trying to analyse, for example, mitochondrial DNA, but I think that's still got a bit of a way to go. So to explain that, sometimes the chromosome count of the embryo can be normal, but the metabolism of the embryo, the factory and the drivers can be faulty because our biggest limitation is the age of the oocyte and women are born with all of their oocytes. So in the cytoplasm, the energy packets are mitochondria and they have their own DNA, mitochondrial DNA. And so that also is as old as the oocyte and the embryo is deriving its mitochondria 100% from the embryo. So there is research work out there that suggests, well, even if you have a non-aneuploid embryo, you might have a mitochondrial error, but it's the sampling and the the technology is still to be still, well- being worked out. still, still, still to be worked out.
1: What's the difference between PGS and PGD? So so
0: the technology is the same. You're doing IVF, you're developing embryos, and you're taking cells away from the embryo, and you're analysing the embryo. Okay. Okay. PGD, which historically was the forerunner, was a technology developed for people who don't have infertility. They know they carry a genetic problem, particularly when combined, runs the risk of having a baby with a serious genetic problem. A common example is what we call recessive conditions. It's where two people, lots of us, most of us, many of us, carry one dodgy gene for something. some variant. It doesn't matter if you're the only person that carries a dodgy gene because you quietly hand it on through generations. But if you meet somebody else who carries the same dodgy gene, this is called recessive conditions, like genetic recessive conditions, then that couple has a one in four chance of having a baby with a significant Very significant problem. chance. So that's pre implants what I call still and many of us pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, PGD. PGS is a component of infertility. It's because we know that lots of embryos in IVF look good, but don't implant. Right. Some of those have aneuploid, some of them don't. And then we have this other group of infertility or reproductive challenges of miscarriage if you like and so that's where PGS comes in for those two sets of couples where one group our primary potential aim is miscarriage reduction for the other group in general IVF it might be cost and time effectiveness if you create a number of embryos that look good the theoretical potential is that by doing PGS on those embryos you will minimize the time to pregnancy You won't change the chance of pregnancy per the original egg collection, but you might end up having a more cost and time and emotion benefit exercise through doing it.
1: So what motivates you to do this work? I mean, what drives you to, you know, spend time having clinical practice in an academic centre and doing your your work here?
0: Look, what drives me? I'm, I'm fundamentally a clinician. I'm a little bit of an educator as well, and I like educating because if you haven't discovered by this podcast, I like talking. <laughs> but my primary life is a clinician, you know, and what drives me is people sending me cards and photos when they have babies. And that's why I've been doing it for over a quarter of a century. So actually helping people mostly for better, but occasionally, tragically, for not better, for better or for worse, helping them through what is probably going to be the most stressful and important part of their lives. Infertility ranks up there with, you know, loss of a parent it ranks incredibly highly on an emotionally important scale. And so does miscarriage, by the way. Miscarriage is, we now recognise it's been increasingly poorly recognised as the social and, and societal impact that that has, particularly on women.
1: What excites you about the future of PGS?
0: Well, I think we will better, like all medical technologies, all medical technologies mature, okay? And you don't always get the continuous curve. You'll get an upslope, a flattening. Out of the blue, there'll be a new upslope, then a flattening. In other words, that's not bad because any area of medicine matures, we get a fancy new toy and we have to decide what its true clinical applicability is, who really benefits from it, who on balance doesn't benefit from it. There are plenty of people with PGS. If you're young and your aneuploidy rate is low, you might actually get a higher chance of getting information you don't want compared to information that you do want. You know, if the mosaicism rate is X and you're adding in a small false positive and false negative rate, that collectively might be higher than your aneuploidy rate if you're young. So that's important. So we have to evaluate that. I think what is now a fairly mature medical practice approach and technology is probably going to be largely journalists often ask what's the next whiz thing. There may (laughs) not be a next big it might just be progressive evolution. I'm a strong believer in this is boring stuff, but I'm a strong (laughs) believer in the in the highest quality application of a complex system. And IVF is a complex system. It's not just about cells on day five. It's about who's entering in at the front end, their ovarian stimulation, their timing of their egg collection, decisions about IVF versus ICSI, you know, how you put sperm and eggs together, culture and incubation of embryos, patient management on the ground, complex interactions and explanations with patients, having staff that have the tools to manage that compassionately, lab technologies like that is all a gradually evolving process because like any other area of medicine, just being able to collect eggs and make sperm put the embryos in will not solve 100% of cases of infertility. So what you want to do is identify who's going to benefit from right, that in the yeah. least amount of time. So I think there's that gradual evolution. Look, the ability to sample embryos leads to societal natural concerns and leads to ongoing ethical challenges, from using that technology to select sex of an embryo, through I was going to gonna ask you about through that, through yeah. editing.
1: If I could just ask you one more question, because mm. you brought something up which is interesting. Recently, there was this case in China where a Chinese scientist used CRISPR gene editing, yeah, to, reportedly, reportedly, yeah. And this wasn't, you know, this wasn't sanctioned by the government mm. in any way. Mm. It was, it was, of course, everyone agrees this was an ethical breach of mm. high magnitude. Can you discuss a little bit about the ethics around this technology?
0: Well, I think ultimately if we value success or we define success as a healthy, live-born baby with a normal life expectation, then I think that's our starting point for everything we do, both in the social challenges of who should we offer services to, who we don't. It's not about them, it's about the child. Okay. Now, if there's any evidence that at this point in time, the manipulation of an embryo leads to other unintended consequences. Then that's, a purely medical standpoint, leave alone the societal aspect. Right, of just, it, you know, but yeah. just from a medical aspect, is not appropriate. There's the wider issue. Then okay, let's say the technology is perfect. Okay, well then, then let's have a discussion, societally, about health economics ethics and stuff. I come from a standpoint where I believe that PGD, in effect eliminating genetic disease by the failure to transfer an embryo carrying that genetic disease, I believe that that is ethically positive And I think that it's actually in the health economic interests of society to do it. But that's because I have an ethical view of what the status of an embryo is. Other members of society will have a different view on the status of an embryo. But those are discussions that we have, and I guess then if you're going from a scenario where instead of discarding an embryo that was a potential life but had disease, that if it's foolproof, is there the opportunity to eliminate that disease? Well, then I think that's an arguable ethical position, but you want to make absolutely sure that you're not causing harm in the process.
1: Mark Bowman, I really want to thank you for this conversation. I think for our listeners and for me, you've shed a lot of light on PGS and you know the infrastructure, the technology, and even some of the ethics that are involved in this topic. I want to thank you for spending time with us and thank you for joining us on the Illumina Genomics
0: Podcast. My pleasure.
1: Hey, if you don't want to miss any of our interviews with scientific and medical experts, just subscribe to the Genomics Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Professor Simon Eastill. He's Director of the National Center for Indigenous Genomics at the Australian National University. We'll be discussing Indigenous Australian genomes and collaborating with Indigenous communities for beneficial research, right here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast.